Let's look tonight at Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and I want to look at um, a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, and give you a challenge tonight, the challenge that Jesus gives us in this passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, and the challenge should be pretty apparent to you when you look at the verses here, Matthew 5. Beginning in verse 14, let's see what Jesus says there. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light so shine. That's the message for us tonight. Let's open the word together. Let's pray at first. Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we approach your word. We're approaching a sacred thing, a holy thing that you've given us where you've revealed both yourself and your will to us. And I pray that we would receive it as the very word of God, that we would receive it as the truth and that we would believe what you say. And Lord, I ask that you would help us uh, that we would understand this commandment that you've given us, what you want from us, and that our light would shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and glorify you, not see how great we are and glorify us, but see our good works and glorify you. And I pray that you would teach us what that means. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is speaking here of the influence of a Christian, and he uh, speaks of it several different ways in the passage. There is a secret, invisible influence that a Christian has in this world that's not apparent to the world, not obvious, but is there nonetheless. And Jesus teaches about this under the symbol of salt. He tells the believers that that his followers that they are salt. Most of the time with salt, we're only aware of salt when it's missing. You know what I mean? You eat it and it immediately there's it's a strange thing how you know this. But immediately you're thinking to yourself, this needs some salt. And you reach for the salt shaker. It's funny because if it's some other, you know, if it's the paprika that they left out, you're not reaching for the paprika shaker to put in there, right? If it's missing the time, you're not you're not grabbing for the time, right? But the salt, we know it's the salt that's missing. Now, some people don't even wait to take the bite. They just grab for the salt, and that's an issue of a different sort right there, okay? The chef, he believes, especially a good chef, he believes that he has put the right amount of salt in the food. Now, if you go to Chekarama, they, you know, they've got the salt out for you, okay? But if you go to a nice restaurant where there's a chef, you know, the restaurant is known for this chef and you go in there to eat and there's no salt and pepper on the table. And if you ask for salt, the chef will bring it to you and he brings it to you because he believes he put the right amount in and he's curious why you want more salt to add to what he doesn't want you to ruin the food that he made. So when done right, the salt's influence is invisible to us. We only notice when it isn't right. Now, when I was uh, a little boy and our family flew, the first time I flew, I was probably three, four, maybe five years old. And we flew on Allegheny Airlines. That should tell you how long ago that was. Um, it was black and white on the plane. 
everything. The whole world was black and white back then. And um, so, and I think there were two little guys in the front that were pedaling really fast um, out there and a couple on the side flapping the wings and making it go. Um, and there was a guy standing, if I remember right, standing on top, looking over the top of the bi-wing. Um, but anyway, we were on Allegheny Airlines. And back then, this will tell you, probably better than the jokes I just made, tell you how, close, how long ago this was. They gave you a meal with real silverware, not silver silverware, but real flatware on the plane. And they brought that to me. And I took a bite of it, and it was like a TV dinner. You know, they had heated it. You pulled the thing back. The lady helped me do that. I was little. And um, then uh, I took a bite, and it was bland, super bland. And so I asked for salt. And when she brought me the salt, and I had never had salt that was like that. It was in a paper packet, you know. And I opened it and turned it, and it... All over the food. And the lady said, ooh, did you want that much? And, and of course, you know what I said, right? Yeah, I wanted that much. And then I tried to eat it, and that was bad. It was really bad. It's a taste I'll never forget. <clears throat> Typically, we don't pay attention to the salt once we've salted the food. Right? You salt the food for the sake of the food, not for the sake of the salt. The salt does its work invisibly, almost unnoticed. Um, But it certainly does its work. That's why you don't pay attention to the salt afterwards. Even so, the Christian has an almost invisible influence in the world. It's an influence that is there, the world is aware of it, but not really paying attention to. And we recognize this if we just consider the efforts that the world makes to marginalize Christianity and its influence on America, to cancel that out. I I think sometimes that they must think we're real dangerous. You know, they like to joke about us, and tell jokes about us and how Christianity is a crutch for people and how it's just something for the weak. But when you see the way they behave towards Christians and the things that they do in order to push us off to the side, I think, yeah, they're not thinking we're walking around on crutches here. They're not looking at us as cripples here because they are truly fearful of our influence In the world, Christianity's influence then must be a very real thing or they wouldn't need to ignore us so vocally. Right. Um, This is the secret. This is the almost invisible influence that a Christian has in the world. If you take it away, then the world, things go badly for the world. There's also, though, in addition to this invisible, um, behind-the-scenes, beneath-the-surface influence in the world, there is also a visible, observable, evident influence that a Christian has in this world. And Jesus teaches about this influence under the heading of light. Salt, you don't, if you're, if you're a saltaholic, then you always want more salt. But if you're like me, I only want salt when it needs salt. Otherwise, I don't think about the salt with that. But light will not be ignored. Will not be ignored. As salt, the Christian influences the hearts of men, sometimes in imperceptible ways. Those men who are most impressed by the influences of their Christian friends might not even be aware of that influence. And sometimes that bugs them like there's something that you you probably have had someone say this. There's something about you. I don't know what it is, but it drives me crazy. What is it? 
And you say, well, I'm a Christian. And they say, that's it. That's it. I should have known. Maybe you've had someone say something along those lines. But as light, the Christian influences men in very perceptible ways. And this is the lasting impression, in fact, that we leave on them. Christ tells us that we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And then instructs us in in light of that statement. He instructs us to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That's our challenge, to let our lights so shine. Now, our hymn says the light of the world is Jesus. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Which one is true? Well, of course, we don't have a contradiction here. They're both true. Jesus, in fact, said of himself, John chapter 8 and verse 12, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John chapter 9 and verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12 verse 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Jesus made it abundantly clear. He is the light of the world. And yet, right here in our text, we're told that we are the light of the world. Christ says it to his disciples, and we are his disciples. So Christ's disciples are the light of the world. In our message then, I want to examine this instruction. We find a very simple division here in our text. First, we see that there is a light. There is a light. And that light is us, you and me. Secondly, we see that there is a place for that light. It isn't under a bushel, of course. But the place for the light is on the candlestick. Thirdly, we find that the light has a particular task. The light is supposed to shine. That's its job, is to shine. And finally, we see that there is a purpose for that light, that men might glorify our Father which is in heaven. So the purpose in doing the good works, the good things that we do, is not that we might glory in ourselves or might bring praise to ourselves, but that we would bring praise to God. By being a light, then, we are declaring the glory of God. And it's a simple thing, really, how that happens, because we know what we were, and we know what we would be if it were not for the grace of God. And so... If I can say that I am anything in Christ Jesus, I can only say it by the grace of God. And it is only further proof of the power of God's grace to transform a sinner into a saint. So first, let's consider the light itself. A candle must be lit and lighting the candle is a a work of God, a divine work. When God began his work of creation, he began the work by saying, let there be light. And when God began his new creation at regeneration, God says it again, let there be light. The entrance of God's words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. God's word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Satan does all that he can to keep us from that light. And that's what the Bible says, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. When God saves us then, he puts light 
in us. He puts the light in our heart. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Truly then, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and as the psalmist says it, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So the light there, when Jesus says, ye are the light of the world, he's not saying something that shows how great you are, but to show that you are a light bearer, a bearer of the light. We have that light. And we can point out a few things about having that light that are important things for us to know. First of all, the light is yours receptively. In other words, you you are a receiver of the light. You are not a creator of the light. You don't cause the light to shine. You don't make it shine. You don't make the light. When Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, thanks to the power of electricity, but he did not make light. He made a receptacle for light, a a way for light to be captured and to, to shine. So as the light then, you receive the flame. You receive the light of Jesus Christ. You receive that. It's not yours originally. God gives the light. But when you receive that light, then it is yours. You've received it. It is then yours. It is yours personally. It belongs to you. It is your light. I don't mean that in the relativistic way that people treat truth. Okay, but I mean it possessively that it is your light. It belongs to you by right because God gave it to you. As verse 16 says it, notice the possessive term in verse 16. Let your light, he says, the light that you have personally received. It is yours individually as well. God doesn't give the light to a collective group. He doesn't give it to a family. And this family now has the light. He gives it to individuals. And you must receive it personally, individually. I would remind you that this light must be received by you. And the way that you receive the light is by receiving Christ. Because he is the light of the world. So if you have not received Christ, then you are not the light of the world. You are not. The only way that you can be the light of the world is if you yourself individually personally have received light from Christ. Now, most certainly God sovereignly brings the flame that is to be the light. But just as certainly you must by faith receive that light. Now, probably all of us in this room have experienced lighting candles. Maybe some of the younger ones haven't quite had that experience, though I'm sure they're anxious To have that experience, maybe parents are not so excited about them lighting candles yet. But if you've lit a candle before, then you know that there is a little trick to it. You've got to hold the candle in the right place and or the match in the right place. And I'm sure all of us have lit the match and failed to light the the candle before um, or put it on the candle. That's my favorite way to do it. Light one candle and then light the others with that candle, except when your birthday candles get to be, you know, too many uh, birthday candles. So we stopped putting all the candles that belong on the cake for me. All right. I just said I don't I don't want to have to take out a loan to buy the candles for the birthday cake. All right. So we can just get a five and a one or five and a two now Um, five. I don't even know. I stopped counting at 40. Uh, But uh, that was, what, 12 years ago? Um, But uh, when you light those candles, you know, and you got too many of them there, and, of course, what do you always do? You start with the close ones, right? And start lighting those. 
And then you get to the ones in the back and you're burning the hair on your arms and setting your shirt on fire and things like that um, there. But look, for a candle, all that is necessary to for a candle to be lit is for the flame to be applied to a receptive wick. I know that may sound profound, like deep truth there, but there is an illustration in that. Because the word of God, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there's a sense in which, though I I don't argue that the sinner is entirely passive in receiving Jesus Christ, because Belief, faith, and repentance are active, absolutely. And yet, still, the way that the flame is passed, the way that the light is passed from candle to candle is all on the flame itself and none on the candle other than that the candle is ready to receive it. And so faith is your reception of the truth of the gospel. That's it. So the candle cannot light itself. The flame is given. The candle receives it. This light we have is ours receptively. We receive it. It is ours personally. It is ours individually. And it is ours distinctly. Lighting a candle is there's there's a sense in which lighting a candle is a separating work. You know, you have the candles on the birthday cake. I don't want to take too long um, talking about birthday cakes. You'll get hungry. Um, And then you'll be thinking about your birthday. Whose birthday is it? Well, it's not mine. I can tell you that. Uh, But you light those candles. What was I was I talking about? You light those candles And there's a very clear distinction between the candles that are lit and the candles that are not. And this is, again, part of what we are as believers, a peculiar people, the Bible says, distinct, uniquely set apart to God. Lighting a candle is a separating work. Just as light divides from darkness. A lit candle is distinguished from all other unlit candles. A candle, when it is lit, is consecrated. When it's not lit, you can stick it wherever you want. You can put it in a Ziploc bag and put it in your drawer in a flammable part of the house inside your wooden drawers, inside your wooden cabinets, and not worry about it at all. But when it is lit, you handle it very carefully. The candle is consecrated. It is designed for a particular service. And that service is to give light. Now again, we are the light of the world. We must be light, not darkness. And so a reminder to you to be careful of your testimony because everything you do and everywhere you go, you are the light of the world. (coughs) Be careful of your testimony. Be sure that you are light. Be sure that you're walking in the light as he is in the light. It's no good for you to carry the torch for God And then walk around as those who are without. Be light. Be holy. Be pure. But then remember that we are just a candle. Technology has produced some pretty amazing lights and light power. It's amazing to me how bright we can get things in our world There are lights now that are 18 million candle power. It's interesting that they measure it by candle power. (coughs) I was reading a little about this. And if you take a candle and you light it, uh, it creates a sphere of light. 
And that sphere of light is a candle power. One can, so what the light, the ball of light that can be produced by one candle. And so you can get spotlights that are 18 million candle power. The, the force, the light that would be produced if you could concentrate it, which is what they've done, concentrated it and make it shine. And I read somewhere that we're talking lights that can, that can shine for thousands of miles. Um, <clears throat> what did I read? A, a hundred thousand lumens. There. There's a, there's a spotlight, the greatest, the brightest spotlight on earth. A hundred thousand lumens. It requires a heat pipe cooling system integrated in the spotlight that uses cooling fans so that you won't risk burning yourself with it. A light that bright, that intense. Brethren, we are not that. We are not that. We are not a spotlight. We are not a floodlight. We're not really even a lamp. Not in the modern sense. The Greek word that Matthew uses can be either a lamp or a candle, but the lamp, understand, is not like our lamp, like a 60-watt bulb burning in it. In Christ's day, there was very little difference between the lamp and the candle. Man had not yet learned to harness electricity. But <clears throat> so the lamp, the candle, either one just depended on the, the style of it, but both needed a flame to light them. But I think candle is perfect. Here, what he's talking about when he says you are the light of the world, he means that you are the candle. You're the candle. Not much of a light, but a light nonetheless. And God has chosen to shine through us. A candle is a flame holder. God gives the flame. The candle holds the flame and the flame continues to burn while it is consuming the candle. Even so, God is consuming us. I know that we hear preaching about being burnt out or something like that. Certainly that's not what we want. But to be consumed, to be consumed with the Lord, to be consumed in his work, that is what we want, to burn out for him. The candle is a small thing, but God uses the small things, the weak things, to confound the things that are mighty. When the electricity goes out, we go for the candles. They're reliable, trustworthy, ready. And do you notice that even a feeble little candle in a dark room where there's no electricity, a feeble little candle will drive the dark away. A candle has the power not only to lighten a room, but also to share the light with other candles. It's true that each candle must receive the light individually. We said that already. God does not light candles collectively. But what do we do? We light the one candle. We use that candle to light the other candles. Right? The candle is a small thing. But when it takes its flame to other candles. It quickly can spread and dominate the darkness. You've had the power go out. I'm sure you've gone and gotten the candles and lit them. And, you know, it's amazing. One candle 
very little light, but then you light more candles, and pretty soon you can navigate through the room. You can get it lit up pretty good in there. And so the Lord tells us that we are the light of the world. We're the candles. And God intends to chase away the darkness through us. The second thing I want you to consider is the candlestick. The candlestick. There is a place, a designated place for the light to shine. That place, of course, is not under a bushel. And Jesus, in fact, pointed that out, that no man lights a candle only to hide it beneath a bushel. We are not to place ourselves in such a way as to conceal the light. We hide it under a bushel when we either intentionally or unintentionally conceal the fact that we are Christians or live in a life that betrays, denies the fact that we follow Christ. Your Christian faith might not be the first thing that comes up in a conversation, but it certainly shouldn't be the last thing that you ever mention to a person either. Hiding Hiding it under a bushel would include denying the faith, of course, but also being sheepish, embarrassed, embarrassed to tell others about your Christian faith. We might also hide it under a bushel by letting ourselves get so busy that we can't take time to share the gospel with somebody. I am as guilty of that as anybody. There was a time here recently. I'm sitting and I'm talking to this person. I'm thinking to myself, I should be witnessing to this person. I mean, if there was ever a time when I should be witnessing to them, it was then. And of course, in my mind, immediately I'm thinking about, I don't know if I want to take the time to do this. I don't know if I have the time to do this. I have other things, other conversations I'd like to have, other things I'd like to do. But that is to hide the candle under a bushel. We might also hide it under a bushel by our bad testimony that keeps people, blocks up the way so that they can't see your light shining because they see that bad testimony. No use putting the headlights inside the trunk. Nobody, Nobody installs the headlights inside the trunk or inside the car. You don't need them in there. My wife always tells the story when she was uh, a girl and they had an old, I think it was a gremlin or a pacer. I think maybe it was a pacer. And um, the headlights went out on it. And, uh, you know, if you knew what a pacer was, then you would understand the headlights going out. And so her mom uh, turned on the dome light inside the car so that at least someone would be able to see them while they were driving. You know, I don't know what else you do. You need some kind of light in there, and so that's what she did. Uh, but that's that's not good for a headlight, right? The dome light is not the headlight. And the place for us to shine is in the place where God put us. We could wish that our light would shine, you know, and we could tell ourselves if I was on the mission field, my light would shine. If I was in Cambodia, or if I was in Brazil, if I was in Indonesia, my light would shine. But you're here in Ogden. You're in Weber County. This is the place where your light is to shine. You work in Salt Lake City, or you work on the base, or you work in a mechanic shop, or you travel around and work. Your light is to be shining wherever you go. You live in your neighborhood, in your own house. In the Jewish home, there was a place for the lamp. It was a high place, a place where the lamp could shine and fill the room with light. It was called the lampstand. The lampstand served as a sort of candlestick. It was flat, sometimes a raised rock. That was specifically designed to hold the rock, the, the light. The lampstand 
enables the light to reach every part of the home, to shine in all the house. Now, let's just be practical here. Jesus said in verse 16, let your light so shine before men. I'm sorry, wrong verse. Verse 15, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So then clearly Jesus has in mind those who are in your own house. When we talk about letting your light so shine before men, we don't always, in fact, often we don't think about the fact that our light needs to shine at home first. That's the most important place for your light to shine. But when we preach about it, we always preach about it directed at those outside of the household of faith. But your light should shine in front of your wife. Your light should shine in front of your children. Your light should shine in front of each other. Surely. Thirdly, I want you to consider the light as it shines. This is the work that the light does. It shines. This is what it does. You can't help it. Spurgeon said, shining is the natural result of possessing light. Again, this is profound and it is so true and simple and obvious to us. Of course, light shines. If it doesn't shine, then it isn't light, right? So lights, the light's work is to shine. The light shines in such a way that it cannot be hid. You cannot hide a city set on a hill. Now, uh, I get to bless you with all my um, Israel trip uh, remembrances and experiences. But when you're on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Beatitudes, which probably not there, but one of those mountains around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and the mountains all rise up around the Sea of Galilee, just on all sides. And you can see those cities. And we were talking about it and saying, do you think that you could see cities back then when they didn't have electric lights? Well, yes, they would have turned on their candles. They would have lit their candles and they would have done the things that they would have done. It's like people do. And you would still see the light. When Jesus said a city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. That's what he's talking about. That the lights are on and the collective houses that are lit up make it bright. Surely we can see that now in this day and age. We were up on the backside of Mount Ogden here and hiking up there at night one time and coming up near the ridge and you could just see the light glowing. That's how we knew we were approaching the ridge. You could see the light glowing off of it. You see that light. It's, it's the collection of all those houses that are lit up. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid because it shines. The word order is literally not able a city to hide when set on a hill. Not able, not possible to hide it. That's why if you're trying to hide from someone, you douse the light. You know, we, 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 uh, during camp, we go and hide up in the mountains somewhere. Uh, and the kids come and hunt for us, we turn off our flashlights before we get to our hiding place. I hate to disappoint the teenagers here who are looking forward to yet another fruitless year hunting for the staff and not finding any because that's what we do is strategy. We get up there and we turn off our lights and we go find our hiding place because we know, we know that the kids, they're peeking. You're looking to see where the lights are going up on this hillsides so that they will know where to go and hunt for us. See, so if you're hiding, 
You turn out your lights. Now, I'm just telling the teens that this is like a bonus for you, young people. Um, Hint, when it's your turn to go hide, do the same thing. Turn the light off. Don't leave it on because that's how we find you. We find you because you have your light on. Now, it doesn't require particular effort, certainly no strain on a candle to shine. Fire shines. That's what lights are all about. When the candle is lit, the entire purpose for the candle is focused on shining. All its energy is spent on shining. Shining is what candles do when they have light. So let your light shine. The word so in verse 16 refers back to the verse before it, verse 15. When you light a candle, you set it in its place on its stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house, even so, let your light shine before men. Notice that word let in verse 16. Let your light shine. That let indicates that we have here a third person imperative. Now, this is where we get nerdy and technical with it, okay? But in English, we only have second person imperative. When I say pick up the trash, You know, I mean you, right? You understand that too. Take out the trash. You understand that unless you are a ninth grade boy and then you don't know who in the world we're talking to, right? He must be talking to someone else, even though I'm the only one here. He's probably talking to himself right there, right? Take out the trash. But the Greek uses also has a third person imperative and the third person imperative always it is a milder command but it is a command nonetheless so so the english translated translates it probably 9 times out of 10 translates it as let let this happen almost like a passive command to let this happen allow it to happen it's not something you do directly with something that you do indirectly. But remember that it is an imperative. Lights shine by nature. That's what lights do. But God commands us to let the light shine. Let it shine. Don't hide it. Don't conceal it. Don't extinguish it. Don't hide it under a bushel. Allow your light to shine. Allow it to. This is not a call for you to promote your own good works or say what a great person you are or magnify those great works or find subtle ways to mention it to other people so that they will applaud you and approve of you and be impressed by you. The call is not for you to make your light shine brighter than what it does. The call is for you to shine. The the light that God has given you is a light that we should shine. Christ is your light. If you received him, then you've received the light. Don't block out the light from shining. Let it shine. How does the light shine? By good works. Holy, sanctified, living. Holy affections and influences. Upright actions, honest dealings, sincere behavior. There's a huge difference, a world of difference between Good works done for self-promotion and good works done for God's glory. Good works done for self-promotion is like adding dirt to a mud puddle. All right? Do it for the Lord's glory. When you confess Christ before men, 
you let your light shine. When you preach the gospel, you let your light shine. When you declare his glory among the heathen, you let your light shine. When you invite your friends and neighbors to church, you let your light shine. When you give an answer of the hope that lieth within you, you let your light shine. So then let's consider this last point. The light glorifying. The light doesn't draw attention to itself. Nobody buys a spotlight so that they can show off how much light they can shine. All right? The light shines out from themselves. The light shines on something else, the things around them. Now, we all have unlit candles in our drawers somewhere. Probably right now you're racking your brain. Where do we keep ours? Someone in your house knows where the candles are. In my house, my wife knows where the candles are. Um, Or at least I assume she knows where they are. When the power goes out, I ask her, do we have candles anywhere? Do we happen to have any? Does anyone know where a match is? Because I don't know where these things are kept in my house. I just live there. But a candle doesn't get glory. Well, I should say, when the power goes out and you light the candles, you're very thankful for the candles, right? But of course, the purpose is not so that the candle can shine. The purpose is so that the light will be in the room. Even so, the grace in the heart that God gives brings glory not to the one who contains that grace, but to the grace itself and the one who gave it. So the purpose here is that men would see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven, that the light would be focused on him, that your good works would point him out. That people would praise, in other words, the light, not the candle. The light never fulfills its purpose better than when it glorifies God. And as the light fulfills its purpose, consider what what else it does. It cheers the room. It directs and guides the steps. It converts. The story is told of two missionaries, a missionary couple, Herb and Ruth Klingon, missionaries to the Philippines at the start of World War II. They, like most of the people, especially uh, Americans who were in the Philippines at that time, were taken prisoner by the Japanese and uh, forced to watch while the Japanese prison guards tortured and abused the prisoners. And many of their fellow prisoners died. There was a particular guard whose name was Konishi, and uh, he was especially brutal. And this was the case in many of these Japanese prison camps. And what Konishi liked to do was to give them extra rice. He would give them bonus rice, but it would always be unhusked rice. And he would not give them any tools for husking it. And it was impossible to husk the rice with just your fingers. Though their fingers would be cut and bleeding and just torn up by those husks of rice. And they would have to take a rock or a heavy stick and they would pound on those uh, husks to break them open to get to the rice. And they would burn more calories husking the rice than what the rice could give them. And so they would slowly starve to death from trying to husk this rice. Somehow, this missionary couple survived. And when General Douglas MacArthur came to the Philippines, he set them free. After World War II... 
Of course, there was a great hunt for many of these Japanese prison guards, and the ones who were captured were made to pay with their lives, executed. And Konishi was found. He was, in fact, when he was found, as I understand it, he was working as um, a groundskeeper for a golf course in the Philippines. He was tried for his war crimes, found guilty, and set to be executed. But before he was executed, Konishi gave this testimony. He said that the, the missionaries who he had tortured and starved had such a wonderful spirit about them and set such an example of contentment and satisfaction that it eventually led to him repenting of his sin and seeking God's forgiveness and trusting the Lord for his salvation. And I say that to you to say this. We are spoiled, spoiled Americans. And a little thing goes wrong and we lose our testimony. Just throw a fit. I've known Christians who harassed the waitress at the restaurant because their food wasn't cooked perfectly or their cup wasn't kept filled to their expectations and withheld their tip over a petty thing. Listen, it can be hard to let your light shine in the presence of your enemies. But you must let it shine wherever you go. Now, I would like to think that the members of our church would have such a testimony in the face of severe persecution as what the Klingons had, missionaries to the Philippines. But if we aren't letting our light shine right now in times of ease and comfort and safety and luxury, what will we do in that day? Let your light shine. Lights are most useful as a steady, faithful thing. A light that flickers and goes on and off, you know, uh, a light bulb that does that, it takes about three times and I'm replacing it. Be on constantly. As long as Christ is burning through you, then you don't need to worry about burning out. A candle that burns under its own power, that relies on itself, its own energy for sustaining power, it will quickly burn out. But when the candle draws from a steady supply of the grace of God, that candle will never burn out. So let your lights shine before men.